Last week saw for us the start of a new series that we're going to be looking at, certainly this term and well into the next, a series in 1 Corinthians. And Christoph started it all last week by giving an overview of what the Corinthian church was like, what the letter's all about, and just to help us get a foundation that we will build on so that we can glean as much as we can from this letter together. One of the things that Christoph particularly looked at was whose is the church? The church is God's. Right from the outset, we affirm that the church is God's. We are part of it, but it is his to guide, direct, and envision, to grow and to prosper. And that was in just three verses. So as we look at a bigger chunk this morning from 4 to 17, we're going to be thinking and developing that a little bit more and and looking into the first of Paul's issues with this church in Corinth. To give you just a, a sweeping umbrella view of what this church was like, it wasn't in a healthy state. It had been a church planted, it had shown good signs But it's now in a position, as we discovered in our text this morning, a place of disputes, a place of difficulty. And Paul is going to address that uh, this morning as we look at it. But as we come, we come in the confidence of the words that we have just sung, as we know them to be true, that it is the power of God that is moving this morning as we seek and learn from him. So as we start, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were thanked for something? It might have been this week. I don't know if any of our teachers have been thanked already for surviving two weeks of school. Um, I don't know if parents have been thanked by their children for having their routines back in again. I doubt it somehow. But when was the last time you were thanked? Uh, My guess is if you've been thanked recently, it's because of something that you have done. So thank you for doing something. Thank you for sharing that meal that you brought round when we needed it. Thank you for your encouraging words. Thank you for doing that job. Thank you for helping. Thank you for your phone call. Thank you for your conversation. Thank you for the coffee. Normally in our world, that's how thanks are given. But right at the very start, in in what Paul does, he doesn't thank them necessarily for what they've done, but he thanks them for who they are. So right at the very beginning in verse 4, Paul goes as he normally goes. He goes with a greeting and then moves into this period of thanksgiving. And in all the other letters that he writes to the churches of the known world at that time, it's because of something they've done. It's because of something specific. But he says here, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. This is key to what's going to come up next in their, in their speaking and in their knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. This thanksgiving says more about Paul and his thinking than it does 
about the Corinthians. Because right out of the gate, he says, I thank God for you. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. I thank God for you because of his grace given to you. There is no doubt that whenever we look at Corinthians, we get this idea that Paul is tackling some major issues. Issues that Paul wasn't happy with. So right from the start, he wants to make sure that they have in their mind who is the one who should be at the center. He gives thanks to God for the grace that he has given them. The grace that came through Jesus Christ. He's reshifting their focus from their internal disputes and their own little kingdom making to say it is all of God and it is none of you. He moves the people from a self-focus to a God-focus. And this is where he keeps his argument right throughout the book. See, Paul wants the best for these people. He doesn't want a church floundering. He doesn't want them to to be sinking and to, to not be doing well. I don't mean physically in terms of growth. I'm sure he would have wanted a good physical growth in the church. But spiritually, he cares for the people at the heart level so that they will grow together and they will be a church after God's heart. They are gifted people. Notice he says that the grace given to you, but I'm also thankful for God, to God for that he has enriched you in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. We're going to have to go back 2,000 years to understand this because this is a time whenever philosophy, argument, discussion, debate was at its peak. If you've gone to any ancient city of 2,000 years ago, If you've done any of the ruins of of these cities, you will always go around and you'll always see temples and places publicly where people could gather, yes, to worship, but also to be able to stand and do their little debate, get off their chest whatever their current thinking was at the time. And it seems that as we look at this initial passage, and indeed as we'll discover in the rest of the book, this is what the Corinthians had got into. They'd followed the way of the world, not as an apologetic to the world, but actually within their own ranks. So they were treating church much like a lecture hall. They were treating the teaching of Christ and the apostles just as anyone who worshipped any other God would have done in a lecture hall or in the public square. They weren't teaching for edification, for building up of each other. They were teaching to win points They were saying, look at me, I'm the smartest. Look at me and my new thinking. But Paul very quickly at the start of this letter says, I thank God for the wisdom and the ability to speak that he has given you. I may not agree with it, but I thank you that it's a gift. And later we'll see the challenge is to harness that gift, to use it for the sake of Christ and not for themselves. See, Paul sees that there's been a genuine work of Christ in them. He says, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Paul witnessed they believed and it was confirmed in them by how they responded to Christ and how they lived for him. 
They responded. They were hungry to learn more and to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. So Paul is very confident that a genuine gospel work has happened in them. Paul is not questioning their standing with Christ. What he is doing is saying, there's a few things going on here that just don't match up to how we should be doing this discipleship following. So he is fully aware that a work of Christ has been done in them. And because of this, because they are found in Jesus Christ, they lack nothing. Every spiritual entitlement is theirs. And Paul recognizes this. He says, you are fully in Christ, and as such, you are inheritors of everything that he has for you. So even though Paul, as we'll read a little bit later, seems quite damning about this church, he still sees it as a church. He still sees these people as his brothers and his sisters. He still sees them as souls who are journeying to Jesus, just as Paul himself is. And Paul moves on to the what is and the not yet, the what is to come, because he says, you're waiting, and everything will be revealed when Christ is revealed. So even though in the here and now in their time they're re- they receiving everything of Jesus Christ that is entrusted to them as it is entrusted to us, he's saying you're waiting. You're waiting for that moment when Jesus Christ will be revealed in all his fullness and, his all, and all his glory. Of course, that is the judgment. The last time when Christ will return to take his people home. And Paul finishes this section by bringing it all back to God. He says, God is faithful. Yes, it is him who has called you to be part of this wonderful family in Jesus Christ. But let me remind you, God is faithful. This is what the Corinthian church needed to hear. They needed to hear that they could still trust in their God. Not in whoever had the latest thinking. Not whoever was the loudest in the conversation. Not whoever had the most eloquent of arguments. It is God who is faithful to keep his promises and to lead you on. So let's bring this 2,000 years to today. He's giving thanks for the church Because we've read on, because we know a little about of Corinthians, we know what he's building up to. He's building up to the fact that there's disputes within this fellowship of God's people. So we must ask ourselves the same question. As people of God, first and foremost as individuals found in Jesus Christ, are there disputes? Are there arguments? Are there things within us that threaten to divide us? I think if we're honest, we will recognize that there are. Yes, there are the great theological debates that rattle around the world. Some of us may be clued into those, some of us not. But we go down and we think of the church as a body, as a denomination. Are there disputes and arguments there? Yes, there are. As we move down to congregational level, are there disputes here? As we move further down to our own personal lives, are we in dispute? Are we having grievances and arguments 
with folks around us and therefore not truly building up the body of Christ. Paul suggests that we must join together and focus on God. It is God who is faithful. We're not. I think the past number of weeks, as we've been looking at different things, we are learning that we are not faithful. If you happened to be out last Sunday evening as we started looking at our topic on prayer, Christoph shared his reality as, as I will share the reality tonight. I'm not faithful in my relationship with God in, in terms of prayer. If we can't even be trusted with these things to be faithful, we can certainly say that we are not faithful people to God. But we must strive to be. Because it is in our faithfulness, it is in our loving Christ and loving one another that we are built up as his people. Let me read you a modern parable. I was trying to figure out if I've read this to you before. I know I read a parable earlier on in the year, a modern parable, the parable of the sea. But I want this time to read you the parable of the geese. Being a good countryman that I am, let's, let's go back to a little bit of nature. This is an American parable, so I've tried to make it a little bit uh, anglicized for you. This autumn, when you see the geese heading south for the winter, flying along in a V-shaped formation, you might consider what science has discovered as to why they fly that way. As each bird flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the bird immediately following by flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds at least 70% more to its flying range than, a, than if each bird were flying on its own. And when a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and the resistance of trying to go it alone and quickly gets back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird in front. When the leading goose gets tired, it rotates back and another goose flies up front. It's sensible to take turns doing demanding jobs, whether with people or geese flying south. Geese honk. They honk from behind to encourage those up front to keep up their speed. When a goose gets sick or is wounded by gunshot and falls out of formation, one or two of the other geese fall out with it and follow it down to lend help and protection. They stay with the fallen goose until it's able to fly or until it dies. And only then do they launch out on their own or with another formation to catch up with their group. People who share a common direction and sense of community can get where they're going more quickly and easily because they are traveling on the thrust of one another's efforts. If we have as much sense as a goose, we will stay in formation with those who are headed the same way as we are. If we, have the same, if we have the sense of a goose, we will stand by each other when danger threatens or trouble comes. I don't know if you like being thought of as a goose. But isn't that a wonderful picture? Casually we look and we see this formation flying across and think nothing of it. But science lends us a bit of a helping hand to say that we're not in this alone. 
We can't be in this alone. We cannot afford to be in this life on our own. We were never created to be alone. Paul is about to launch into helping this church get back on track with God. And he starts off by saying, God is faithful. He is faithful to us as individuals. And he is faithful to us as a community of his people. So that we can be like this parable that says, stick together. Because, and I thought this was interesting, people who share a common direction and sense of community can get where they're going much quickly and easily because they are traveling on the thrust of one another's efforts. I know I'm too early to be thinking uh, of an annual general meeting. Such words may quake some people, but we always get our report at that stage. But if you were to think of the past year of the church so far and what we've done since last September, what would you say that our vision and our thrust is here as God's people, as part of Kirkpatrick Memorial. Very quickly, we'd be looking at what we've done with evangelism. Very quickly, we'd be looking at what we've done in engaging with the community around us. Very quickly, we'd be looking at how we are growing together as his people. We do this together so that we can recognize that God is faithful. And in God's faithfulness, we will be kept so that we will not be divided so that there won't be disputes, so that there won't be arguments, there won't be kingdom building of individuals or small groups. Rather, we will be kingdom building for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who at the start of our service we affirmed as a great God who is worthy of praise. Paul's advice to the church in Corinth and to us today, bring Christ to the center. Bring him and make him the center of everything that you do, everything that we do, so that we will know the blessing of being his people. Let's move on and let's get into the real meat of what Paul is, is trying to get uh, to these people in Corinth. He's done his thanksgiving. He's thanked these people not for what they've done, but who they are found in Christ by the grace of God. And he turns and he says in this strong language, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Strong language. He appeals. He urges. He's, he's weeping for them for whatever's about to come. And he doesn't do it in his own authority. He is recognized as an apostle. He could have used that authority. I urge you, as Paul the Apostle in everything that I have learned, but he takes them where he has just finished, straight back to God the Father and the working of salvation through Christ the Son. So he says, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. He urges them to get over their disputes, get over their arguments, get over whatever their holdups are, and to be perfectly united. Let me help you uh, understand this word united. The NIV really doesn't give us a good idea. United, we just think as a, a group of people coming together with one purpose. The Greek is actually saying knitted together. I don't know how your knitting is. I can remember doing it in P7 
And even then, it wasn't great. I haven't tried it since. I can't even remember the wee rhyme. Do you remember it? Um, in through the bunny hole, round the big tree, out through the bunny hole, and something, something, something. For depending on my knitting, it wouldn't get very far. But you get the idea. Whenever something's knit, whenever something is so entwined together, it's hard to break. This is what he's saying. Be knit together as God's people. Don't just come together with a, with a thought and an idea and a philosophy. Come together and be knitted so that you cannot be broken. That your purpose will be one as you are brought together, as you are in Christ Jesus. It's a strong picture. A strong picture that, yes, the church in Corinth was called to, but that we are called to. To be knit together as God's people. To be his. To be servants of his and servants to each other. To love one another as Christ loves us. With our flaws and all. At times it's very easy for us to think that we are better in different ways than other people. But when we're knit together there's no room for that. There's no room for a hierarchy. We are Christ's and Christ alone. We are his appointed people to be his. Not to dominate, not to put across our particular persuasion, but to be knit together as a people united for Christ. And Paul desires that they will return to a state of worship that goes beyond their practical and their theological differences. Be united in mind and thought. He says, come together again. Come together as being knitted together in your worship so that together you can share humbly, not asserting your knowledge or authority, thinking that you are smarter or wiser than anyone else, but come together as Christ's people. Be humble to one another and teach one another and more importantly, be open to learn from one another. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. And Paul moves on in verse 11 to say, well, how have I heard all of this? Well, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So a report has come to Paul. Now, who's Chloe? Chloe, it seems, is an Asian lady uh, who has been very successful in business. And because she's successful in business, she would have had agents who would have traveled between Ephesus and Corinth to do business for her. And it is likely that with the growth of Christianity in these days that some of her agents would have heard the gospel, responded, and would have worshipped in Ephesus and in Corinth. And so the word has got back to Paul. They've told Paul about the disputes and the quarrels that are among this church. And he says, this is what it is in verse 12. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. What he's saying is, everyone is divided on their biblical understanding and thinking. He's saying, you're coming down and following the teachings of one person in particular. So to say that I follow Paul means that they're following Paul's teachings. Or the teachings of Apollos who came after Paul. Or indeed, Peter, who we have no record ever of going to Corinth, but certainly Peter would have been known throughout the Christian world. 
And even some will say, I follow Christ. So they're following the teaching. They're becoming the disciple of the one that they are following. There's no doubt in their minds that they all would have said the last one. Ultimately, they would have recognized that they're ultimately following Christ. That they're learning from Christ. But it's the particular interpretation, whether it's because they liked the personality or it's because they liked uh, how they were being taught or indeed the message that they were being taught, they have factioned. And so the disputes are rising from the teachers. Not directly, but their teachings as to what they have taught the people in Corinth. Paul doesn't like this. There's no doubt in this. Paul will be agitated that people are following him. No, he says throughout everything that he writes, follow Christ, follow Christ, follow Christ. I am the least of all the faithful, follow Christ. Paul then moves on to say, think about this for a minute. That's almost in a sarcastic tone, but we know that Paul is so genuine that he cannot afford to be sarcastic. And he says, is Christ divided? So rather than going through the same argument that he's heard, he flips it round and he starts with Christ and says, is Christ divided? And what's their response going to be? Don't be ridiculous, Paul. Of course he's not. And that's the point that Paul wants to make. Right out in solving this dispute, he says, Christ is not divided. There's no difference in Christ. So therefore do not be divided, but be united in Christ. He then goes on to make it personal to him and he says, was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. Don't be ridiculous, Paul. It is only Christ who was crucified, the living Son of God who died and rose again so that our sins can be forgiven. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Don't be ridiculous, Paul. We were baptized into the name of Christ. It is him who is our Lord and our Savior. It is him who has given us this new birth into a living hope that will never perish, spoiler fade. Paul is asking him the questions that of course they're going to say, Paul, don't be silly. But in asking these questions, Paul is giving them the argument right back on their doorstep. And Paul is saying, Corinthians, don't be silly. Don't fall in these disputes and these arguments, but follow Christ. Paul goes into a little bit of baptism now. Don't read this as Paul's theology on baptism because he says, I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Paul's using this to support his argument. Paul holds baptism with the highest regard. We know that through the rest of his writings, but what he's saying is, I didn't do anything, so don't do it and don't follow in my name, but follow in the name of Jesus Christ. The names that he, that he brings up here, Crispus was the Jewish synagogue ruler in Acts 18 and verse 8. Gaius was a host to the whole church as accounted in Romans 16 and verse 23. It was most likely he was a Roman freedman. Stephanus, little is known about him except that his family were the first converts in the province and he is a church leader as we find out in 1 Corinthians 16 and verses 15 to 17. It's interesting reading this because we're so used to our word processors that we can quickly delete something we don't like and redo it. It's, it's Paul flowing here. He's saying, oh yes, I, I do remember now Stephanus. But again, it's all to say, look, if I baptized you or not, I don't recall. 
because that's not what is important. What is important is salvation. Paul fully recognizes that baptism does not affect salvation. It is salvation and then baptism, but in baptism it is a a public display, it is a a confirmation of Christ on our life, but it does not affect salvation. So he's saying to them, don't get caught up in personalities. Don't fall into that trap. And here's why. For Christ did not send me, in verse 17, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says it's very clear. My calling is to preach the gospel. And I preach it in a way that it will not be watered down, that, it will, that nothing will be taken from it so that it will lose its power and its strength. You see, this is what he's saying is at stake. He's saying to the church in Corinth and to the church today, our disputes, our disagreements, our arguments, what's the ultimate outcome? A dilution of the gospel message, the message that saves souls. A message that changes a life from the direction of hell to the promise of an eternity in heaven. This is what is at the heart of the matter for Paul. And so it must be at the heart of everything that we do. How do we deal with disputes? We remember the gospel. How do we deal with arguments? We remember the gospel. How do we deal with each other patiently? We remember the gospel. The gospel that has won us and the gospel that keeps us. Paul is revealing that it is the gospel that is at the center of everything we do. He says, in, or Christ says in John 13 and verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. The context is Christ knows he's not going to be around. He's preparing his people. And here's what he says. When I'm gone, you're going to be marked. And here's how they're going to mark you. Love one another as I have loved you. Or sorry, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the call to the church. This is the call to us as individuals to love one another. And why do we do it? Because Christ has loved us. He has given us the example to follow. And so we follow our master We follow our teacher. And as we do, everything of the human element that creeps into the ministry and the work we do, it won't be able to stand because we are following Christ. We are following him rather than following our own notions, our own ideas, and our own self-centeredness. If we have as much sense as a goose, we will fly in formation We will love one another. We will help one another so that what we witness here in the church in Corinth will not take hold, but rather we will be united in worship, in worship of everything that God has for us, all his goodness. He will fill you. He will fill me. He will fill us all as together we follow Christ who sets us the example. Let's pray.
Father God, we recognize that as we hear of other congregations, as we hear stories of what church life is like, there are so many disputes, there are so many arguments, there are people fighting with people and yet professing that they are found in Jesus Christ. Father, guard our hearts and our souls. Guard the heart of this congregation that we will not fall into such traps. And if we are slipping or if we have disputes in our lives with people who are our brothers and sisters, help us to know your grace so that we can show grace as we desire to be as Paul helps us understand to be your people as you have directed us to live to be united together, united in Christ, united with each other, to live and serve him. Father, guard our very souls. Keep us from the temptation and the traps of the evil one. And lead us together. Lead us as we march ever forward to that wonderful eternity in heaven that you're leading us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.